0: chapter 24 of policy and passion this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org policy and passion by rosa Campbell prade chapter 24 fascination It was one of the deepest of Longleat's sources of sorrow that he could understand no circumstances penetrate the barrier of reserve which held him apart from his daughter. This had always been the case, and the older she grew, the more apparent became the want of unity between them. He had wished, and in his rough way had often tried, to ascertain the inner workings of her mind, but had always been rebuffed by her refined and distant superiority. Her grace and beauty and a certain impalpable element of contempt which flavoured her intercourse with him inspired him with a feeling of awe. He was constrained in her society, and in constant dread of committing solecisms. He was conscious that his antecedents were unworthy of her, and carefully avoided any allusion to his life prior to the bullock-driving period, of which necessity compelled him to make in some sort of virtue, There were certain particulars of his youthful career which he earnestly desired to shroud in oblivion. He would have endured any penalty rather than that they should come to Honoria's knowledge. Public disgrace would have been nothing to him in comparison with the smart of being humiliated in her eyes. She was the core of his life. When he saw her unhappy he was pained, while he yet lacked the means of fathoming the source of her grief. Never had he felt so acutely the division between their souls as now that it was borne in upon him that she was miserable from some outside cause which he knew not. He was the last person to whom she would have attributed any degree of mental intuition, but his sympathies, when they had reference to her, were keener than she supposed. If Barrington and Maddox, the former with triumph, the latter with melancholy chagrin, both observed the dawn of a new consciousness upon her face, As though some late experience had roused in her nature passionate sensibilities hitherto latent, her father was no less quick in remarking the change in her demeanour from scornful indifference to restless excitement or maidenly embarrassment. He could only ascribe it to Barrington's influence, and his dislike to the Englishman as the representative of a race which he abhorred was intensified by jealous resentment of his power of affecting Honoria's supremacy, which he, her father, had hitherto considered unassailable. At the same time, a shy dread of his daughter's displeasure, pride on her account, and a curious indefinable satisfaction in the attentions of a man whom all the ladies of Leichardt's town were anxious to attract, prevented him from placing a veto upon Barrington's visits. It must also be stated that he had no idea of their frequency, a point upon which neither Mrs. Ferris nor Honoria was careful to enlighten him. Honoria herself was perfectly conscious of the change which Barrington's influence had wrought in her, and, with a bewildered sense of danger, fought vainly against the spell under which she had fallen. Her moods became variable, and her manner alternated between fits of almost unnatural gaiety and silent depression. Often she felt a gasping need to cry, though tears were an unfrequent outcome of her proud susceptible disposition, For the first time in her life she experienced a craving for womanly sympathy, but, wrapped up in herself, she had always held aloof from feminine companionship, despising alike the gushing confidences of her girlish associates and the cackling advice which had been eagerly preferred by matrons, and so often rejected that it was now no longer tendered. So that, with the exception of Mrs. Ferris, who was quite incapable of comprehending the nature of her needs, she had absolutely no woman friend to whom she could turn. She yearned for some deeper source of happiness than gratified vanity, and though she attributed the sadness which had fallen upon her to reaction after mental excitement, she knew well that it dated from the commencement of her acquaintance with Barrington. It was he who had infused the melodramatic element into her life, and who had stimulated sensation so powerfully that there was no further cause for complaint of stagnation. Yet, if he supplied all that her heart needed, Why should the haunting strength of his eyes fill her with the dread of some undefined peril? Why, instead of the pure ecstasy of maidenhood of which she had dreamed, should this new love, if indeed it were love, be accompanied by thrills of excitement from which her better instincts recoiled? Coincident with the extraordinary fascination that Barrington exercised over her, her relation with Dyson Maddox had assumed a new phase, his continued avoidance of her society afflicted her with sharp pain. Yet, whereas formerly she would have brought all her coquettish wiles to bear upon his recapture, she was now timid and embarrassed in his presence, and shrank, with the maidenly reticence that is never found in a coquette, from allowing him to see how deeply she missed him. She often told herself that he had ceased to care for her. He seldom visited at the bunyas now, and when at balls he asked her to dance, addressed her with cold formality. WHICH WOULD HAVE CONVINCED HER OF HIS INDIFFERENCE DID SHE NOT CONSTANTLY FIND HIS EYES FIXED UPON HER AS SHE waltzed HER TALK WITH BARRINGTON. SHE SOMETIMES MADE A DESPERATE RESOLVE TO CLEAR AWAY THE MISCONCEPTION BETWEEN THEM BY AN IMPASSIONED APPEAL TO HIS FRIENDSHIP, BUT THE INTOXICATION PRODUCED BY BARRINGTON'S VOICE AND TOUCH WOULD AGAIN LULL PAINFUL REGRET, AND WOULD PLUNGE HER INTO A STATE OF ECSTASY WITH WHICH THE THOUGHT OF DYSON WAS WHOLLY INCONSISTENT. The winter season in Leichardt's town does not usually begin till May, when the victims of tropical heat are sufficiently energized by westerly breezes and bracing weather to enter upon the labours of active enjoyment. This year, however, the rainfall had concentrated itself into the severe floods, which, as has been seen, were mainly instrumental in the Premier's defeat. April set in fair and cool, and the abrupt dissolution of Parliament brought down many country gentlemen who would otherwise have remained on their stations and who, in the intervals of electioneering, rushed eagerly into social dissipation as a counter-irritant to the political fever. In the middle of April, Lady Georgina Ogmering issued invitations for a ball, which was supposed would open the winter gaieties. The night upon which it took place was clear and moonlit, and the ornamental lamps and Chinese lanterns with which the terraces and flower-beds were outlined seemed hardly necessary for purposes of illumination. The air was soft and balmy, and though not too warm for waltzing, it was yet sufficiently mild to allow delicate young ladies to wander, thinly shod and lightly cloaked, among the shaded walks which led towards the river. Government house, a two-storied building with stone piazzas and deep colonnades, seemed the haunt of ghost-like figures in white and black which moved aimlessly among the arcades. Through the open doorways light streamed forth upon the gravel sweep, and within— a whirling kaleidoscope of dancers flitted across the polished floor of the ballroom. Flags draped the center archway and glossy palm leaves festooned the musicians' gallery, from whence issued the dreamlike strains of a by Labitzky. At one time, early in the evening, Honoria stood against a crimson curtain, framed in feathery fern fronds and silver pampas grass, idly watching the pretty scene before her, and apparently taking no heed of the attentions of her cavalier, who was indeed the heavy young squatter whom Barrington had met at the Bunyas. The enchantress of Kurilbin had the knack of assuming picturesque attitudes, and her sweeping bust and fine profile in relief against their brilliant background attracted many a glance of admiration. She was dressed in white, with a cluster of camellias at her bosom, and without ornaments, save for a golden serpent encrusted with diamonds that clasped her neck. Her glance, directed uneasily towards the doorway, she was expecting the arrival of Barrington, fell upon Dyson Maddox, who was watching her attentively. The music ceased, and he made his way towards her, and asked her if she would spare him a quadrille. "'I have one left,' she said. "'It is the next, but I do not wish to dance it.' "'We will not do so,' said Maddox. "'I will find you a seat.' She took his arm, and he led her out of the ballroom and into a fern-screened corner, where he placed her in an armchair. There was a great gentleness in his manner, though he hardly spoke. Each seemed conscious and embarrassed. Dyson abstractedly fingered the leaves of a scented verbena, and she sat still, her eyes fixed upon the garden, silent while yet her heart yearned towards him. Suddenly she half stretched forth her hand to him, but he turned to address her, and she drew it back. "'Miss Longleat,' he said, speaking with forced calm. I should like to say a word to you about what passed between us when I was last at Coralbin. I am almost sorry that I mentioned to you the reports that I had heard about Mr. Barrington. It is only right to tell you that I have tried to substantiate them, and that I cannot at this distance do so definitely. You may think that I had a selfish motive for speaking. I had none. I am glad that you should make your happiness in your own way, apart from mine. What do you know about my happiness?' "'said Honoria in a low tone. "'I watched you at Coralbin. "'I saw the maidenly struggle in your mind. "'It convinced me more strongly than words could have done. "'I believe that he is in earnest, "'that it is not your fortune which he seeks. "'He is passionately attached to you. "'I do not know why I should have doubted it. "'A man has instincts, like a woman, "'and mine made me dislike what I saw of Mr. Barrington. "'I distrusted him.' It is possible that I may have wronged him. And now I feel that by warning you I have made you unhappy. A woman who loves and doubts must be miserable indeed. You think that I, that I love, said Honoria, uttering the words with difficulty. You despise me. How could a man despise a woman for being womanly? It is selfishness and coldness which breeds wretchedness and contempt. The love which would only gratify itself is false and narrowing. I am disciplining my heart. Obedience to a higher law teaches distrust of motive. I, of all men, should have hesitated to condemn Mr. Barrington. Honoria, you are frank and innocent, and your best safeguard against wrong lies in yourself. The woman who loves and trusts is nobler than she who has a lukewarm faith and a selfish prudence. Let your heart expand. Love is what you need. Tell him what you have heard and ask an explanation. Rely upon your intuitive power of discerning truth to assure you how far you may receive it. You mistake, said Honoria in hurried tones, as though she had been laid under a stress to speak. You think me better than I am. I am not womanly. I shrink from myself. If I had a mother, I should not dare to tell her how I feel. I should be ashamed. Oh, if this is love, there is nothing noble in it. It is like witchcraft." IT IS AS THOUGH SOMETHING EVIL FROM WHICH I CANNOT ESCAPE HELD ME AGAINST MYSELF. AND WHEN I AM AWAY FROM HIM, MY HEART ACHES WITH A LONGING WHICH I CANNOT DEFINE. WHILE WHEN HE IS NEAR ME, I SHRINK FROM HIM AND AM AFRAID. I KNOW NOT OF WHAT. IS THIS LOVE? HELP ME. TELL ME WHAT MY FEELINGS MEAN. WHAT THEY MEAN, REPEATED MADDOX BITTERLY. CAN YOU DOUBT THAT YOU LOVE HIM PASSIONATELY? He has revealed to you your woman's nature. You never blush so for me. Oh, let us have no more of this! He exclaimed almost roughly. It is the refinement of cruelty to ask me to analyze your feelings. Forgive me, Honoria, if I leave you abruptly. I see Cathcart coming to claim you. He turned sharply away, brushing against Cathcart, who was advancing from the ballroom. You'll find Miss Longleat behind the screen of ferns yonder he said collectedly, "'I have had enough of this. There is work for me to do, and I am going back to the office.' Cornelius wriggled into the vacant chair by Miss Longleat's side. Presently he asked, fixing his melancholy little eyes upon her face, "'Should you like to dance?' "'What?' asked Honoria, wakened out of a dream. "'I dare say you have forgotten that you are engaged to me for this waltz.' I was trying to make up my mind whether I should remind you of your promise.' "'I would rather not dance,' said Honoria. "'Then we'll sit here,' rejoined Corny, placidly. "'I have been telling myself the whole evening that a man verging on forty should be thinking of better things than capering about on French chalk.' Honoria gave her shoulders a little shake, and recklessly began to flirt. "'You have not been to see me since you came to town.' she said with her irresistible smile. "'The wisest people in the world are the fools who know themselves to be fools,' replied Corny, oracularly. "'I might become an unconscious fool in your society, so I avoid you.' "'Tell me,' he added suddenly, "'have you forgotten my warning?' "'Are you only experimentalizing still, or have you gone further than you intended and raised the devil?' "'I see. Your face betrays you. "'You are in love at last.' "'Well, I am sorry for old I—' "'You think this of me, too,' she murmured. "'You fancy that I am only an indifferent observer. "'But I have had my reasons for studying you. "'I know you well. "'Often I have watched you out of the corners of my eyes "'when you have seen me huddled up over a book. "'I did not think you capable of a grand passion. "'I do now. "'I respect you for it. "'Here comes Mr. Barrington. "'I must resign you.' "'Barrington approached. "'Miss Longleat, this is our dance. "'I have arrived just in time to claim it.' "'Honoria took his arm, and they entered the ballroom together. "'Preeminence is the surest road to a woman's heart.' "'Honoria rather piqued herself upon the profession of communistic principles, "'and did not hesitate to own herself the daughter of a man who had worked his way up, "'but she retained the right of exclusiveness in the selection of her lovers.' She was, in fact, remarkably susceptible to the current of refinement which she believed to be the attribute of the higher orders, and her vanity was agreeably flattered by the marked attentions of a man whose high birth and air of distinction made him the object of general comment. As they waltzed together she felt a dreamy delight in yielding herself to his embrace. Her feet seemed winged, and the lights and figures appeared to float before her bewildered gaze. She was giddy and breathless when they paused near the doorway. There are a great many people walking in the garden, said Barrington. Will you come out with me? They went on to the terrace. A stream of dancers followed them. He paraded the gravel with her impatiently for a few minutes, then led her into an unfrequented walk which wound through the shrubbery towards the river. They passed a little summer house which was dimly lighted with Chinese lanterns. He paused for a moment before it, and Honoria saw that it was occupied by a lady and gentleman. Her quick eyes recognized in a moment the premier and Mrs. Valancy. Her father's puffy red face was in close proximity with that of his companion, and his large hand clasped Mrs. Valancy's small gloved fingers. Honoria's soul swelled with indignation and disgust. "'Take me away!' she cried, and walked hurriedly on. "'turning presently into a side path. "'I am sorry that accident should have turned our steps hither,' said Barrington. "'I am not surprised that you are angry and wounded. "'Your father's intimacy with Mrs. Valancy is an insult to you.' "'Don't talk to me of it,' cried she passionately. "'Everything that I see and hear sickens me. "'No one seems to care what I feel.' "'You are in a strange, lonely position,' Barrington said, in a tone of deep tenderness. "'Your father's house is no home for you. "'You must marry and leave it.' "'You were not meant to lead a cramped existence in Australia,' he went on. "'Your gifts are wasted here, your beauty, your rich capacity for enjoyment. "'You should live in England. "'All that society and art can furnish should be placed within your reach. "'And there is more. "'I can give you the key to fullness of life. "'Honoria, you are ready for love?' and it is waiting at your feet. Yield yourself to me. Your unrest will become tranquillity, your dissatisfaction exquisite joy. One instant. Only look into my eyes. Only let me touch your lips, and you can have no doubts. He stooped to embrace her, but she moved a step or two away from him. You ought not to speak to me in this way, she said excitedly. I don't know what to think. "'I cannot trust my feelings. "'I do not know whether I love you or not. "'All I am certain of is that since I have known you "'I have been miserable. "'I feel sometimes as though I hated you.' "'Darling,' murmured Barrington, "'your conventional instinct rebels against the affinity "'which from the first has linked us together. "'You are startled by the discovery of a force "'which you do not understand. "'No other man can influence you as I can and do.' Hitherto all your life, your feelings, your interests, have been commonplace. You have never known passion. This is passion, and it alarms you. Stop, cried Honoria in a bewildered manner. I cannot think, I must think. Let me go back. Don't come near me any more this evening, do you hear? Don't say anything more. Don't look at me. Barrington kissed her hand. I obey, he whispered, then silently led her back to the house. I will come to you to-morrow, was all he said, as he placed her in a chair beside Mrs. Ferris. End of chapter 24 Read by Céline Major